Be seated, please. We have a guest preacher today. We welcome Father Kevin Crake, who's from Everett, Washington, where he's had a mission up there for about a little over a year. He's a friend of our parish, also a brother of a member of our parish, Stephen. He was here for baptism a little while ago. So we're very pleased to have him. So we welcome Father Kevin Crake. Thank you, Bishop Scarlett, and I want to thank you all for welcoming me to be here with you this morning. It's a privilege to be here, just like it was a privilege for me to be able to be here a few months back to baptize my little nephew, Lincoln. So thank you for having me back. So with that, let us now turn to God's word in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. We often refer to the writers of the Gospels as evangelists. And this is fitting because that is, is essentially what they are doing. They are evangelizing. They are sharing the euangelion, the good news of the gospel about Jesus and the way in which God was working and ushering his presence into our world through his son. It dawned on me that the evangelists really are great storytellers, communicating God's invitation to us, his invitation to us to enter into his great narrative, his narrative and his actions in history and inviting us really to find our share, to find a place where we participate with him in this story, in this great work that he is doing. So as in any story, as Mark is telling us, when you're dropped right into the middle of it, it's helpful to have a little bit of orientation, to get your bearings a little bit, and to be able to better understand all of what's happening, especially in our gospel reading this morning. So it seems like most people believe that Mark is the earliest gospel that we have, the earliest of the four. It has been traditionally ascribed to a co-worker of Paul named John Mark, who was also well known by Peter. And in fact, according to an ancient church historian named Papias, what we see in Mark is actually then a compilation of Peter's eyewitness testimonies, which have been arranged and formatted by Peter's partner, John Mark. And the Gospel of Mark, it's fascinating, and it's fast-paced right from the start. As Tom Wright so aptly puts it, it's as though someone were to walk into your room in the morning with a bucket of water and splash the water on your face. Say, wake up, something incredible is happening here. You can't miss it. And we certainly see this something incredible right from the beginning in Mark's Gospel. As he begins in chapter 1 by identifying John the Baptist fulfilling this great prophetic role, calling Israel to repent, calling Israel to, re- to prepare for the return of her God. And then we would expect God to show up on the scene because John himself is calling Israel to repent and to return and to prepare, I'm sorry, for the return of God. But then it's at this point that Mark presents us with Jesus coming onto the scene. And the not-so-subtle point is being made here that in Jesus in his life, it is none other than Yahweh himself who is returning to Israel. Jesus is then baptized, and Mark tells us that he goes throughout Galilee, preaching the kingdom of God. So then in the remainder of the first eight chapters of Mark's gospel, we are presented with the reality of who Jesus is, and the reality and the power of the kingdom of God being ushered in in his midst. This is seen in Jesus' ministry and in his teaching. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. He's forgiving people their sins. And he's teaching about the kingdom of God. 
All of which then point to that reality of the kingdom. So this is where we find ourselves then this morning in our gospel reading from Mark 7. And Mark's purpose here is to present us with, with the riches of the kingdom of God and the reality of who Jesus is, Jesus' identity. And in so doing, Mark also shows us in presenting then who Jesus is. Mark shows us that there have been so many different responses to what Jesus has been doing. From the excitement of the 12 apostles to the hatred of the Pharisees who plot to kill Jesus to the blasphemy of the scribes against the Holy Spirit and even the shame of Jesus' very own family who are ashamed of him and they go out to seize him because they think that he's gone mad. Underneath this, I think Mark has a purpose and that purpose is to ask us a question. What are, what are you going to do with Jesus so many have been responding in so many different ways. Where are you going to find yourself in this story? So then at the end of Mark 7, we are told that Jesus is back in Decapolis, which is a largely non-Jewish area surrounding the, the area to the east of the Lake of Galilee. This was also the place of Jesus' miraculous exorcism back in chapter 5. And then this memory of Jesus' exorcism has obviously stayed with the people in the area because as soon as he returns, they bring someone to him to heal him. And they beg Jesus to just put his hands on him so that he can be healed. And then Jesus, interestingly, takes, him, takes the man away from the crowd. He sticks his fingers into his ears and he spits on his fingers, on his own fingers, and places his saliva-soaked fingers on the tongue of the deaf and mute man. After this, Jesus looks up to heaven, and he says, I'm sorry, he looks up to heaven, he sighs, and then he says to the man, Ephatha, and immediately his ears were opened, and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak plainly. And then surprisingly, Jesus tells them all to keep it a secret. Don't tell anyone, but this is to no avail, as they went about and proclaimed all the more what Jesus had done, saying he has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. So this story in Mark, like many others in his gospel, serves a purpose. It serves the purpose, like I said, of presenting the reality, the revelation of Jesus' identity. So we should take a look here then at a few of the main, main things that Mark intends us to see and learn about Jesus in this miraculous story of healing. The first and most obvious thing that we see about Jesus is that he is a healer. There were indeed other alleged healers in the ancient world, but Jesus' healing ability obviously creates a response and an astonishment that is unmatched by anyone else. The signs and wonders that Jesus is doing, or is, yeah, the signs and wonders that he is doing have a purpose. And that purpose is to point out beyond themselves. They're not for their own sake. They're meant to point out beyond themselves to the reality of what God is doing, to the reality of how God is acting in this great drama, in this great story, how God is bringing his salvific plan to the world, to its completed end. And Jesus' method, I think, for healing is really interesting. I don't know if you've ever really paid too much attention to it. Really only Mark 
out of, the, out of the four evangelists is really the only one who spends time going into some of the details of how Jesus heals. It's fleshly. It's earthy. Uh, it's physical. Again, I try to imagine what this would look like. Jesus sticks his fingers into the man's ears, and then he spits on his own fingers and touches the man's tongue with his saliva, his saliva-soaked fingers. Jesus is using these physical means, touch, saliva, and we also learn in Mark in another case, he uses mud to heal. And then is added to these physical means a word of command, ephatha in this case, which is Aramaic. You know, some might say that I'm reading too much into all of this, but this is starting to sound very sacramental to me. The physical means combined with the power of Jesus' words to bring about the miraculous. It shouldn't then surprise us that ordinary creatures like bread and wine, combined with the power of Jesus' very own words, confecting the Holy Eucharist, is one of the primary means that God uses to pour out his saving grace on the world. Okay, so then another remarkable aspect of Jesus' healing, which leads me into the next thing that I think Mark wants us to learn about Jesus in this story, is the compassionate nature of Jesus' healing. In Jesus, we are meant to see the compassionate God of the universe at work. This again touches, I think, on the question of why Jesus does these things, why he performs these signs. I think they are done primarily to reveal who he is as I've said, and how God is working in him. But what Jesus actually does is remarkable. I mean, think about it. Jesus had, has all of this power. He, he could have put on ostentatious shows, trying to display his wondrous power in a, in a, I don't know, some spectacular way. But he doesn't do this. That's not his M.O. to just put on a show. He's not about spectacle for its own sake. Let's put it this way. Jesus doesn't do magic shows. He heals people. And I think that's the point. That the way that God demonstrates his power to the world is through wonderful displays of compassion. So Mark wants us to see that the way that God demonstrates his power to the world is through wonderful displays of compassion. Which shouldn't surprise us. Because it's at the heart of this gospel it's at the heart of the story that Mark is telling us. The good news of the gospel is that the God of the universe, when he looks down on us, when he looks down on us in our helpless estate, what is his response? Well, his response, it's all over the Bible, is that he's moved with compassion when he looks upon us in our helpless estate. And it's out of this compassion, then, that he deals with us, that he pours out his love and his grace and his mercy on us. We then learn that Jesus is also the one who has this deep connection and intimacy with his father. After he had touched the man's ears, he, he looks up to heaven, recalling, if you remember, what he did before when he multiplied the loaves and fed the 5,000. He looked up into heaven. And what this communicates is powerful. Jesus is the one, he, he doesn't act on his own. He doesn't act on his own. Everything that he does comes out of the intimacy and the relationship that he has with his father and then the obedience that he has towards his father's will. 
It's like, just so there is no confusion here to the deaf and mute man and to all those who are around. What, what's about to happen here, this is why Jesus looks up to heaven, what's about to happen to you is the work of God himself. It's the work of God himself. It comes from above. Again, the point is that this is not magic. Jesus is not performing magic. That's not how God works. This is the Holy Trinity working together to restore that which is broken. The Holy Trinity working together to restore the created order. And then after he looks up to heaven, he sighs. And this calls to mind his compassion. And I also think that it calls to mind the groan of the Spirit. Too deep for words that Paul speaks of in Romans 8. This is Jesus' only prayer, his only communication with the Father. Looking up into heaven and sighing. And that is because he shares this deep intimacy and has this special relationship with him. So then finally, from the reaction of the crowd, we learn that Jesus is the one who has done all things well. And the, the crowd is astonished beyond measure, which is the only appropriate response. It's the only repro- appropriate response to the one who has healed the sick, to the one who has cast out demons, to the one who has forgiven sins, to the one in whom the God of the universe is at work. Jesus has indeed done all things well. And he will, throughout the remainder of the Gospel of Mark, throughout the remainder of the story that Mark is telling us, Jesus will continue to do all things well. As he takes that dark, gloomy road to Jerusalem, entering willingly into his passion, going all the way down into the depths of God-forsakenness for us, on our behalf. And then from there, victoriously conquering sin, evil, and death as he rises again from the dead on the third day. And thus, ushering in the great blessing from Isaiah 35, an illusion which I don't think a first century Jewish person would have failed to see in the story that Mark is telling. It says in Isaiah to Israel, after many long, sad years of exile, the people of God are told, Be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. A highway shall be there and a road and it shall be called the highway of holiness. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. With everlasting joy on their heads, they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This great blessing from Isaiah is being fulfilled in Jesus. This is what Mark wants his readers to hear. This is what Mark wants his readers to understand. And there will be all kinds of different responses to this to this great invitation to have a share in this story, to participate in it. This invitation to participate in the divine life of God. So the question then remains, what will your response be? How will we respond to Jesus? And Mark's exhortation to his readers as he is telling the story And my exhortation to you this morning 
is that when confronted with this reality, when confronted with Jesus and the wonderful riches of his kingdom, that with the entirety of your being, from the deepest part of your heart, and with your whole life, that you would indeed respond well to Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.